The hymn writer asks, was it the nails, O Savior, that bound you to the tree? No, it was your everlasting love. Your love for me, for me. Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to you, the Holy One, to bear away my sins. Are those words written by the hymn writer Catherine Agnes May Kelly are a prayer that all followers of Jesus should utter before God every day. We must keep coming back to God to, to ask him to help us grow in appreciating uh, the infinite value of the death of our Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary for our sin. You see, we cannot grow in living for Jesus without growing in understanding and valuing the death of Jesus. The cross of Jesus is the bedrock of our faith. In the words of the Puritan Thomas Brooks, all the temporal, spiritual, and eternal deliverances which we enjoy swim to us through the blood of that covenant that has passed between the Father and the Son. Now, we are currently in the final leg of Mac. Jesus is in the final week before he is crucified. And this evening we are in Mark 14, looking at verse 1 to verse 2. Uh, these verses we are looking at, it really sets the scene for what is coming. That's why initially we are going to look at verse 1 to verse 11, but we thought let's just isolate these verses a little more because they set the context for what's coming. They describe the plot to murder Jesus. And this evening I want all of us just to explore a simple question. And the question is this, what are we to make of the murder of our Lord Jesus Christ? What are we to make of the plan, the plot to crucify him? There are just two answers I want us to consider uh, that helps us answer that question. And they are very straightforward. The first is that Jesus was murdered by us. Jesus was murdered by you and I. That's the first point. Jesus was not lynched by an angry mob. He was not beaten to death in some criminal act. It was not the hands of deranged jihadists. No, the death of Jesus was arranged by the powerful religious leaders of the day who represented the best that humanity had to offer at the time. Let's read those words again. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The chief priests and the scribes here who are seeking to arrest and kill our Lord Jesus are two of the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin. And the other third group are the elders. As you know, as we've been going through Mark, I've explained that the Sanhedrin is the official religious council of the Jews. They look after the Jewish affairs, and the Jews are living, of course, under the colonial power that is Rome. So the scribes here, uh, who, make up the, who are part of the Sanhedrin, are legal experts and advisors. They are a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees. 
The chief priests who are mentioned here include the current high priest of the Sanhedrin, uh, Kephas, and his predecessors, as well as their family members. All of them are Sadducees. Now, according to Matthew 26, verse 57, the meeting that is described, the, the meeting to kill Jesus, this plot to kill Jesus, uh, where they're discussing this plot, is being held at the house of Cephas, uh, the high priest. He's overseeing the murder plan. John 11, verse 47 to 53 tells us, it is Cephas who pronounces the decision to have Jesus put to death for the whole nation. So when we think about the matter of Jesus, this is a murder from the top. The high priest of Israel, the most holiest person in the Old Testament church, Israel, is about to sacrifice the high priest of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. To kill him in cold blood. In short, the matter of Jesus, the Son of God... We will not be done by humanity at its worst, as I've said, by humanity at its most wonderful and religious best. These are people who attend church every day, hold conferences every day on religious matters. These are people who have memorized the Bible, the, the Torah, all of it. The first five books of the law. The people who, who, who crucified Jesus are justify their actions by the highest standards of the law. They, they crucified Jesus, they murdered him, believing they were actually serving God. It's so important we understand that. He was murdered by our brightest, our best, with the best system of justice we can think of. The best ethical system the world has ever invented. With the Ten Commandments, they are sitting by the side as they deliberate. And this reminds us that if we were in their place, we would have done the same thing. Because all of us, including the best of us, including the religious best of us, are sinners before God. They knew the law, but they were still blinded by their sin. The old Negro spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the late John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, answers the question. He says, yes, we must answer. We were there, not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate. But our attempt will be futile. John Stott says, For there is blood on our hands. The hymn writer Horatius Bonner expressed it well, didn't he? When he said, It was I who shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that noise of rude voices, I recognize my own. The first question we must ask this evening is, do you recognize your voice among those that put Jesus to death? Do you recognize your face among the Sanhedrin council as it meets at Cephas' house? Do you recognize that you are as much a sinner as these men who murdered our God 
Jesus Christ on the cross? You must answer yes. As John Stott goes on to say, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. John Stott says, only the woman or man who is prepared to hold his share in the guilty of the cross may lay claim his share in its grace. John Stott, the cross of Christ. Do you accept you killed God? Do you accept you share in the gift? Sometimes people ask, where is God in my life when I need him? Often when they're going through some trouble, they ask, I need God, where is he? And the Bible's answer to us is this, is that God is there hanging on the cross and you put him to death. The cross, you see, empties all our lives. Human beings are not running to God and giving him a hug. No, the cross says we are working hard trying to eliminate God and do away with him. You see, the matter of Jesus shows who we truly are. It shows that we are spiritual midnight sun and murderers who hunt to kill the creator at every opportunity. And the matter of Jesus shows what sin is. It tells us that sin is killing God. Sin is stealing the life of God from our lives. It's rebellion against God. It is rebellion against God, our creator. What we see the Sanhedrin is doing is actually how all of us, by nature, live our lives. All human beings want God to disappear. That is the DNA of sin. When you sin against God, whether you tell a small lie or anything else, you are telling God, I don't want anything to do with you. I would rather you were not there and just getting me, allow me just to get on with what I want to do. You see, we are all, by nature, spiritual murderers. And until we accept that this is who we are, we cannot benefit from the forgiveness that Jesus offers us by his death. We need to consider this truth very carefully. Because you see, you need to accept that you as an individual, all of us, you are a great sinner before God. You are a natural born murderer who deserves his eternal punishment. And there can be no forgiveness for your sin and mine. We cannot have life with God without first coming to terms with this truth. That Jesus is God murdered by us. And I think we need to dwell on the us in the context of the Sanhedrin, especially as we consider this truth as many of us here profess faith in Jesus. Because this truth is not just important for those who haven't yet repented. This truth, I think, is especially important for those who have professed faith in Jesus. Because, you see, you cannot grow in your faith in Christ without first making this truth central. Why do I say that? Well, ask yourself, why have the Sanhedrin decided to murder Christ, the Messiah? The reason for that is because they have the one to preserve power and control over the people. 
And Jesus is threatening that. You see, the Sanhedrin have seen Jesus defy their authority. He's not respecting their madman law, mad-made laws. He's been calling them hypocrites, brood of vipers. He knows the Bible more than them, so when he calls them hypocrites, it sticks, right? And he's teaching with amazing power and authority, and people like him. The crowds cannot get enough of our Lord Jesus. And above all, as we've seen Jesus throughout mad, Jesus has undeniable power. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He walks on water. He calms the storms. And he drives out evil spirits. The evil spirits bow down and acknowledge him. You are the only one of God. And all of that has got the Sanhedrin very worried. They are worried that they will lose power to Jesus among the Jews. And they know that the more Jesus becomes popular the more the Romans may not like it. And the Romans may just take away, ramp up the pressure to quell any sort of idea of insurrection. And the last straw that has broken, if you like, the Sanhedrin's camels back is the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem where he has effectively claimed ownership of the temple. Do you remember that passage in Mark 11? seems like a long time ago now. Mark 11, verse 15 to 18, three chapters back. We read this, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changes and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? For all the nations. But you, the Sanhedrin, have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes had it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The Sanhedrin are fearing Jesus. They are suspicious of Jesus. They want to murder him because Jesus is a threat to their way of life. He is a threat to them because he's showing that their religion is empty. You must understand, beloved, that if Jesus had come praising the Sanhedrin for all their religious effort, for all the good things that they do in attending church and evangelizing and so forth, if he had come doing that, they would have rolled out a red carpet for him. But he has come challenging their sin. Jesus has come proclaiming himself as Lord and Savior of sinners. He has come calling on all people to repent and surrender control to him, including the Sanhedrin. This is difficult for the Sanhedrin to accept. But you must understand that the Sanhedrin really represents the best of humanity, but I think especially they represent the best of the changed context in our day. It is difficult for the Sanhedrin to accept. It is also difficult for us to accept. Believe it or not, the fact that you make professional faith doesn't make it easier for you to accept every day that Jesus is God murdered by you. It is hard for those who love God already to keep that truth central. And that's why this passage is here, isn't it? 
It is here to remind us that the marriage of Jesus, but it's a need here to warn us that all of us are prone to murder Jesus. Even those who know their Bibles very well. We need to keep remembering that, beloved. Not just because when we hear the gospel preached, our mind wanders off. We, we turn off. We think this is all boring. We've heard it before. That's not the reason we need to remember this. We need to remember this truth because we are tempted ourselves every day to put Jesus to death by the way we live. We are tempted to do what Hebrews warns us against, crucifying Christ all over again. Now I'm not saying that you are tempted to walk away from Jesus and become an apostate. No, 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 no. I mean, that's a real problem, and of course people sometimes are tempted to do that. But for many of us, we are not tempted merely to walk away from Jesus. What we are tempted to do is to kill the real Jesus and replace him with our own version of Jesus. Our own clone, we might say. Has Jesus not often felt like he's an inconvenience to you? Do you not often find Jesus very uncomfortable to deal with? Oh, he's so challenging, isn't it? Jesus' challenges are our sin, our filth so often. He's so uncomfortable when we open the pages of Scripture sometimes. Are you not often tempted to have a Jesus in your own image? Someone who has saved you from sin but does not demand you to surrender? Are you not tempted to justify that when you look at your, perhaps your spouses that do not really live in a way that honors Christ? Are you not tempted to reinterpret what Jesus expects to say? Just for the sake of my spouse, I'm happy to think of Jesus as a Savior only. The Lordship part will come later. That gives us comfort, doesn't it? It gives us comfort to think that people we love and care about are truly converted when they are not. This is the temptation we face, you see, of crafting a Jesus in our image. Are you not tempted to have a Jesus who says, you can be my follower, but you don't have to be committed to the local church? Are you not tempted to turn Jesus into a spiritual vending machine? You are tempted to think Jesus owes you a good marriage because you love him. He owes you a good job because you worship him. Are you not tempted to have a sort of Jesus you can bargain with like that? Are you not tempted to have a Jesus who only cares about your, you loving only your family and does not expect you to put him first, even about your family? You see, there are many things we are tempted to turn Jesus into. All followers have such temptations. And beloved, when we give in to such temptations, we are living in a way that's doing exactly what the Sanhedrin is doing. We are putting Jesus to death. Now, we have two options when it comes to that. We could just ignore all that and just deny that, that we and consider ourselves better than the Sanhedrin. We'll miss the benefits of the rest of this passage if that's what we do. What we should be doing is we should accept that. As painful as it sounds, we should accept that even though you are trusting in Jesus. You are living as a spiritual murderer. We talked about arrogance and stubbornness during the Bible study. We talked about how we often tune out when we hear difficult truths preached in, when we're discussing the Bible study on Thursday. Well, this is one place in which we don't want to be arrogant. 
We don't want to despise the authority of God's words. We want to hear what Christ has to say to us here. We want to accept that we, in the way we live, put Jesus to death sometimes. Because you see, unless you remember that Jesus was not only murdered by us back then when the Sanhedrin did it, but you also accept that he's being murdered by your sin, you will not grow in grace. You struggle to grow in grace. Why? Because you won't be able to benefit from the good news of this passage. And there is fantastic news in this passage. Here's the fantastic news in this passage. The fantastic news is that Jesus was murdered for us. So the first truth is that Jesus was murdered by us. We need to be aware of that. We need to consider that we were involved, we share in the guilt, and we surrender to Christ. Yes, God has taken care of that guilt, but we also need to consider that the way we live often means that we're still putting him to death. We need to repent of that. We need to continue repenting of that and surrendering to that. And the reason why we need to do that, to accept that, is that we benefit from the second truth. Jesus was murdered for us. You see, there's a risk that as we reflect on the Sanhedrin's murder, to, to plan to murder Jesus, as we go through the rest of his uh, Mark chapter 14 to 16, we may forget the central truth that Mark is communicating throughout the chapters that are going to come. And he's already been hinting on that. Let's read those two verses again. He says, It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Just take those verses in, ponder on them. And I hope something strikes you out. I hope two things there strikes you out about, strikes you about this verse. Because Mark here is revealing to us that Jesus, listen to me carefully, Jesus was not murdered in the end, in the way the Sanhedrin intended. It's so important you get that. What we're seeing in these two verses is God thwarting their plan in two important ways. First of all, we see here that the Sanhedrin planned to arrest and kill Jesus by stealth. Other versions say in secret, cunning, and deceptive way. We might say today they wanted Jesus just to disappear. To kill him without a trace. For him to suffer an unexplained accident. He's out on a boat, on a yacht somewhere. He just disappears. No fuss, he's gone. He's taken care of. He's had a drowning accident. But we know that is not how Jesus was killed in the end. He was put on a public trial. He was killed on Golgotha for the whole world to see. He was crushed on the cross to fulfill the scriptures. God, even in the way Jesus was killed, thwarted the plans to do this by stealth that the Sanhedrin had planned. That's the first thing we notice. Secondly, because the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus to take care of Jesus on the quiet, they planned to kill Jesus after the Passover feast. It's important we understand that. Look at verse 2. For they said, not during the feast. 
not during the Passover and unleavened and the feast of unleavened bread. That's what they've said, isn't it? Lest there be an uproar from the people. We need to understand a bit about what's going on at the moment in Jerusalem, right? During this time of celebration, Jerusalem's population has quadrupled. We imagine nationalism and messianic expectations there at fever pitch. The large numbers of people actually means that the colonial masters of the Jews, the Romans, are extra vigilant to ensure that no one causes any trouble. The Sanhedrin knows this. Remember, they're interested in preserving their power. So they have decided they do not want to kill Jesus during the Passover feast in case there is a riot. But again, because we know our Bible, we see that their plan will also be thwarted. Jesus will be killed during the Passover. God literally cancels out verse 2. They say, not during the Passover. God says, no, I want my son to lay down his life for sinners during the Passover. Why did God do it this way? Well, let's track up a little bit before we come to that. On the surface, of course, we have to ask the question, why did Jesus end up being killed during the Passover? On the surface, we know the reason, don't we? The reason is in verse 10 to verse 11. Did you read that? If you scan over there. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. In verse 10 and 11, it's so fascinating when you meditate on these scriptures, you realize, and we'll come to it later, that it's almost like Judas now takes over the planning. It is him now who engineers the thing. It's him who goes to them. It is him now who, if you like, accelerates their plan. That's what's happening on the surface, right? On the surface, it seems like events have happened. That means an opportunity, a window has been created, which they cannot refuse. Judas is offering them a deal that they cannot refuse. But the deeper reason is that God always planned that his son should die not just on the Passover, but publicly on the cross. You see, God planned that our Lord Jesus should die during the Passover. Why? Because the sacrifice of the Passover lamb pointed forward to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says this. Paul says this to the Corinthians. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lamp as you really are and living. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you know anything about the Passover, you remember when Pharaoh repeatedly refused to let the children of Israel go free, God brought a final plague to kill all the male-born children in Egypt. But to protect his people Israel, God commanded that they kill the Passover lamb and smear the blood on the lintel and doorposts of their houses. And as a result of that sacrifice and substitution of the Passover lamb, Israel was spared the wrath and judgment of God. And now God ordained that our Lord Jesus should die on the Passover as a fulfillment, if you like, of that initial Passover. Jesus is the Lamb of God, as John says, who has come to take away the sins of the world, but more so who has come to protect us from the very wrath of God and judgment. 
He had to die publicly. Why? Because right there on the cross, he was taken on himself the wrath and judgment of God that we deserve, not just for the Jews, but for all who truly come to trust him. Not only for converted Jews, but for all who truly surrender their life to him. He was dying for you and I. That's why it had to be a public act. The point in all of this, beloved, is that And it's amazing. The point is this, is that the death of Jesus is God's idea. It has his fingerprints on it. It is God who from eternity past orchestrated the death of his eternal son. And this is the the, the murder mystery here, if you like. The religious leaders put Jesus to death. We are observing the event. But wonderfully, as we go through Mark, we are seeing how God is also working underneath. There are so many questions we ask nowadays, isn't it? When we observe an event that is taking place, whether it's a coronavirus or something else that's taking place, the question we tend to ask is, are the events we are observing real or are they somehow ants that are working underneath it? And of course, all sorts of alternative news and sorts of things have happened. Well, as you are a follower of Jesus, we believe the news we see in the world is both real and fake, right? <laughs> or real, real, at both places. Because in some sense, it is real in the sense that what we're seeing are the events that are taking place in human history. But we believe that underneath the the, the, the ordinary events we observe is the hand of God also working. So they are real, real, so to speak. And that's what we are seeing here in the death of Jesus. The religious leader put Jesus to death, but it is God who acted in and through their sin for his sovereign purpose. If you like, Jesus came to Jerusalem. He has come to Jerusalem on a sovereign mission to be murdered by the religious authority so that he could be crushed for our sin. And beloved, this is what salvation means. What is salvation? Salvation is Jesus being our Passover lamb who shed his blood to keep the wrath of God's judgment at bay. Jesus diverted the wrath of God which we so richly deserved, it diverted it from us and absorbed the wrath of God to himself, taking the full body impact of his wrath. He was crushed, as the scripture says, for our transgression. And he died willingly and selflessly for our sins. You know, we started off with the question, didn't we? What are we to make of the murder of our Lord Jesus. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I mean, how else can you respond? How else are you meant to respond? Worship. Worship. God, our Creator, has purposefully entered this world to be murdered on the cross by His creatures for my sin. The Puritan John Flavio asks, is it not astonishing that he who from eternity had his father's smiles and honors, he that before the foundation of the world was adored and worshipped by angels, for our sake became a footstool for every miscreant to tread on. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. It is astonishing I hope it is to you. It is to me astonishing that God stripped all of his robe, all of his glory, and for what? 
so that I can have life with him forever. There's no other response to that truth than worship and thankfulness. Thankful because we have such a loving and wonderful God in Jesus who has shed his blood to make us right with God. Because Jesus is God murdered for me, if I'm truly trusting in him, all of my filth and the stains of sins have been wiped clean forever by Christ. If we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you now stand clean before the throne of God. Because Jesus is God murdered for you. God the Spirit now lives in your heart forever. Because Jesus is God made it for you, your future is already written with the precious, infinite blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, God is bringing you safely into the new heavens and the new earth. Your future is guaranteed. There is no separating you from the love of Christ. And one day, beloved, one day you shall see Jesus face to face. There is a time coming when you suffer no more. When you sin no more. When you no no longer be disappointed by anything. Never again will you have to worry about evangelism, right? Never again will you have to doubt that whether you are faithful in Christ or not. You'll be home with the God you love. Never again will you be tempted to live for yourself. Never again will you be tempted to craft for yourself a false Messiah, a false Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, be thankful for that. And how do we express thankfulness? There's no other way to express it. Come before him in worship. Uh, Here is your God. Here is the God who has loved you, who has saved you. Here is your glorious Savior who was pierced for your sin. Here is the one who left heaven for me. Here is God murdered for me. Worship. Worship. Oh, beloved, let us keep meditating on this truth. Because if we meditate on this truth that Jesus is God murdered for us, this truth, it becomes a firewall that keeps the temptations to murder Jesus with sin every day at bay. The only firewall against Mentoring our Lord by the way we live is to keep reminding ourselves of this truth. This truth. God has been crushed on the cross for me. Stephen Shannon says this a quarter of quarter before, haven't I? There are no charms in sin, he says, which cannot be overcome by that ravishing love which bubbles up in every drop of the Redeemer's blood. Can we, with lively thoughts of this, sin against so much tenderness, so much grace, so much compassion, which sound so loudly in our ears from the cross of Jesus? Can we? Shall we consider our Lord Jesus hanging there, being murdered by us, hanging there on the cross to deliver me from hell? And can I then keep walking on in sin which leads to hell? Can we take any pleasure in that which inflicted so much pain to our best friend? And then he concludes, he says, for the lack of study 
of Christ crucified, we walk in, in sin. Why do we love sin so much? Why do we tolerate it? Shannok says this truth. We don't study Jesus murdered for us. For the lack of study of Christ crucified, we walk in on sin. Why do we struggle to evangelize? Because of this. For the lack of study of Christ crucified, we do not share it. Shannon is saying the more we appreciate that Jesus was murdered for us, oh, the more we worship him rather than murder him. The more we live for him. Well, may the Lord help all of us to take this truth to heart and grow us together as individuals of the church in adoring and praising Jesus, our loving God.